This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, at found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Amanda J. Lucia. She is an associate professor of religious studies at the University of California at Riverside, where she is co-director of the Institute for the Study of Immigration and Religion. Her research engages American religions and Hinduism by focusing on religious encounters between North Americans and South Asians. Her book, Reflections of Amma, Devotees in Global Embrace. Uh, Amanda, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on the show with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Uh, Amanda, um, we want to talk a, a lot about Alma and um, your uh, findings in your scholarly work. Um, you are a scholar of religion. You are a product of Chicago's University of Chicago's famous program in the history of world religions. And um, in that context, what drew you to uh, do a, a study of the woman we call Ama, Mata Amrita Nandamai. What drew you to it? Um, well, it's a kind of a long road, I'm sure, just like any other scholar of religion, how one gets to be where one is is often uh, a story only told in hindsight. Um, but I do, I was already studying in the field of gurus, and I had done undergraduate research uh, living for a year in Varanasi and interviewing ascetics, um, Hindu babas and sadhus um, from Varanasi all the way up to the, the mouth of the Ganges in Gangotri. And I was fascinated by gurus' lives, by the ascetics' lives, by the yogis and their um, radical difference from the way I was raised. Um, which was not religious, but certainly locked into the material world in many ways, um, just like any other American kid. Um, and then I decided after taking a degree in India studies and religious studies um, and going on to grad school at Chicago, I was thinking of what kind of dissertation to do and was working uh, on my Hindi, actually, with a summer in Jaipur. And I kept, people kept telling me, you have to go see Amma. She gives these hugs and she travels all over the world. And a good friend of mine had gotten a hug from her in LA. And I thought just the, 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 not the unusualness of a Baba or a guru of any kind giving hugs was worth seeing, Dekne Layak as it were. So uh, when I came back to Chicago, it just so happened that she was um, in town that July, and I went to see her, and uh, the crowd really was what drew me into deciding to write a dissertation, and of course, then later the book on uh, her and her movement, um, because the crowd was so unusual. In uh, Chicago, there's a large Indian Hindu population. Um, but then there's also a large population of non-Hindu, non-Indian uh, spiritual seekers. And to see these people interacting so closely and um, all there with one common goal really drew me in. And did you go in, uh, did, what was the effect of the visit, and I assume you got a hug from her on you, 
did it uh, take you from being somebody that was just uh, doing scholarly research to somebody that actually embraced her as a guru? Well, um, I felt like at first I was concerned because so many people around me, scholars included, kind of pointed me in her direction saying she's the real thing. Um, that in fact, I put off going to see Emma for several years because I thought that, uh, if she really was the real thing that might ruin my scholarly distance, right? <laughs> ruin the scholarly enterprise. Um, but I went to see her nevertheless, and I definitely was, um, uh, viewing it as a scholarly project when I went and was very, uh, aware of that. When I had my first darshan, I write in the book that I felt a huge amount of energy and I looked at her and just surprised at watching uh, this happen to me. And um, I write in the book that she winked at me. And I always remember that because I, I got a couple of uh, emails from devotees after the book came out who said, you know, Amma doesn't wink. You must have saw that wrong or heard mm -hmm. it wrong or, or imagined it or whatever. Um, but I always kept that wink in my mind, just in the idea that um, anything is possible. Uh, so, no, I didn't take Amma on as a, as a guru, as a personal devotion, but, of course, spending so many years among devotees, I, I developed a great appreciation for their feelings and um, for the power that Amma has to bring all of these people together. Um, Amanda, for the sake of our listeners who might not know much about Amma, uh, we should mention that uh, she's commonly known as the Hugging Saint, uh, but maybe you could give a, a brief overview of, of her and uh, how what made her such a global phenomenon in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. So Amma is still alive. She's born in 1953, and she was born in a small fishing village in Kerala, um, to a somewhat low-caste family, and she was darker-skinned than her uh, brothers and sisters. And the hagiographies, or the devotional stories of her life, um, tell that she uh, was somewhat discriminated against by her own family and had a, had a kind of low position. But they suggest that because of this, she developed uh, outstanding compassion and would uh, embrace people around her to comfort their suffering. Um, and these embraces grew uh, somewhat famous and people began to come to her to receive her embraces. And some people reported uh, stories of healing, stories of miraculous change that resulted from these embraces. Um, and the crowds grew around her and she developed her, her persona as an embodiment of the goddess at that time, usually Kali, uh, the Hindu goddess mm -hmm. Kali. Um, and then in 1987, she came to the U.S. for the first time and that was really the beginning of her global tours as we see them today. Um, she still spends quite a bit of the year in India, in Kerala, and then doing a northern India tour. But she also comes to the West, and now she goes to Kenya and South America and Japan um, in order to have these programs that are free and open to the public. Uh, thousands of people come on any given night. And after a brief period of spiritual talks and bhajans or devotional music, Amma then starts to give darshan. 
and her darshan, darshan is usually in the Hindu context, seeing and being seen by God, as one would have in a temple looking at a figurine of the deity, or even uh, seeing uh, a holy person in an airport or in a Himalayan cave. Um, mm-hmm. But Amma recalibrates this so that darshan turns into a hug, which is quite radical when you're considering uh, coming from a Hindu context mm-hmm. where the strict boundaries of gender and, and caste restrictions um, prevent people from touching, certainly touching strangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda, I'd like to ask you a, a question, not just about... Uh, Ama, but about uh, gurus in general, because this is an area of your research. One of the things I've observed, and I, in in situations in environments that are uh, where there are gurus, where there's a movement that's guru centric, uh, people tend to um, view the guru as all knowing, really a god on earth uh, or a spokesman for the divine, and who knows all about everything. And you'll often hear around Amma's people, Amma said this, Amma said that, around Yogananda's people, Master said this, Master said that. And every aspect of life, uh, uh, they um, are looking for her guidance or his guidance, whoever the guru may be. And, and on the one hand, um, there's something very sweet about that. On the other hand, uh, for many people, it's somewhat frightening that one is turning one's everything over to the guidance of this guru. And I know people, even in Amma's case, but this goes for many gurus, every time they have to make a decision, well, I, I can't uh, decide that until I go see Amma up in Chicago or I see guru so-and-so in San Francisco or I go to India and speak to Baba or whomever. And I'm wondering what your uh, feelings are about that, uh, uh, you know, as a scholar and also as somebody that's been directly involved and very, very close to these gurus. Right. Um, that's an issue. If you are uh, attached or a fan of your own free will and ego, then guru devotionalism is not for you. Um, because the way that Amma devotees explain it, which I think uh, puts kind of a soft hand on the issue, but it helps to understand their perspective, is if a mother is with a young child, say, walking across a parking lot, and says, hold my hand, right? Don't run away. The child needs to hold the mother's hand and not run away because if not, they could get hit by a car or there could be some impending danger. Um, And the child has to trust in the mother's superior knowledge of the situation, right? Um, So in the guru field, in in guru movements in general, that's the same kind of relationship that's established between devotees and their guru, that the devotee must surrender and trust in the guru's superior knowledge. And usually you're, you're right that this is either considered to be a very high level of wisdom or, in fact, a divine presence that is omniscient and mm. omnipresent on earth. So, um, yeah, it also is kind of a, uh, a common idea within Amma's movement and others of be careful when you ask the guru's advice, say, on those kind of issues that you're talking about, should I get married, should I leave my job, should I move to uh, Hawaii, or whatever it might be, because once the guru tells you the answer, it, one, you have to do what the guru says. Right? <laughs> yeah, there's a danger there. What if she says something I don't want to do? 
Exactly. <laughs> so I think sometimes devotees are very cautious. Uh, yes, they do run to the guru to ask simple questions and even sometimes life-changing ones. Um, but then sometimes uh, if they have a, a personal uh, attachment to a particular answer, they may, in fact, reserve that. Yeah. Um, Amanda, now we've brought up the, the questions of, of her uh, devotees. In your book, um, Reflections of Alma, uh, you distinguish between uh, two types of devotees um, that you call adopters and inheritors. Could you explain that and tell us the differences you found between them? Right, absolutely. Um, so, in Amma's movement, it really depended on what city one was in and how large the Indian population uh, was as to how many inheritors of the tradition one found. So by inheritor, I meant someone who was raised within Hindu traditions broadly. So they may not have been raised as an Amma devotee, though many of them were, um, but they were familiar with the Hindu nomenclature. They were familiar with Hindu practices, with the scriptural references that Amma was alluding to. Um, and the people who were adopters were people who were not raised within a Hindu environment. They may or may not have had any familiarity with Hinduism or gurus or India before they met Amma and fell in love. So um, I was trying to get away from the kind of stark racial boundaries that sometimes divide these groups because noting that there are Indian people who weren't raised Hindu. Uh, for example, there are Sikh uh, Indians who follow Amma or Muslim Indians who follow Amma and also to get away from the um, the kind of white stereotype of adopter populations because of course nowadays there are increasing numbers of African Americans and Mexican Americans and Filipino Americans who go to see Amma. Uh, yeah. So, but what I did notice between these two groups, one of the very important differences was that they had different aims and different goals in maintaining congregational spaces. So the inheritors were very interested to keep Hindu traditions alive. They were very interested to uh, rekindle and vitalize uh, food culture, um, ethnicity, uh, other kind of cultural holidays. Uh, for example, some of the satsangs or congregational gatherings were gender segregated, things like that. Whereas the adopter populations weren't very interested in congregating at all. Oftentimes, it was an individual path that they went to see Amma and felt they had a personal relationship with her. Um, and so they tended to be more anti-institutional, anti-establishment. These are the spiritual but not religious crowd. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Amanda, first I want to say, I, I know uh, a number of people that consider themselves devotees of uh, Amma, and, and uh, these people are very sincere. Uh, most of them are very intelligent, uh, they're very devoted, uh, and uh, they have nothing but the most wonderful things to say about their experiences with Amma. Uh, it was also brought to my attention, there was a woman who was a uh, disciple of Amma and with her for many years very closely, Gail Treadwell, and she wrote a book that was uh, very critical of, uh, uh, of Amma and her movement. And, uh, and I, I wanted to get your your fee, your, your uh, thoughts on it, but also I also wanted to say what was a little disturbing to me was uh, when she wrote the book uh, and uh, people were discussing it, especially amongst Amma's devotees that I knew, it was all immediately something's wrong with this woman, she's gone crazy, and they were really not 
open to listening to what she had to say somewhere. And I don't know how, what her credibility is. I don't know her. I, I just am uh, an observer. And, I, and in a lot of guru-centric movements, there is issues like this that come up. But uh, I, I'd like to know what your feelings are about Gail Treadwell and the book she wrote. Right. Um, I'll take the first or the, the second part first, rather, um, mm -hmm. that for devotees, why would they not entertain the critics? Um, just like any kind of rational person would when analyzing between two choices. Um, and I think we have to recognize that the stakes are so very high for these folks. Uh, these are people who may have given their whole lives to Amma. They have made uh, life choices uh, due to her direction. They may have, depending on how involved they are in the movement, they may have uh, their primary family and friend networks within the movement. They may have issued kind of regular forms of uh, sustaining themselves by, for example, moving into the ashram or giving away their possessions or doing volunteer labor instead of uh, labor for remuneration. They may not have 401ks, for example, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, so when one said, and to challenge the guru destabilizes the very nature of the guru-disciple relationship because part of that relationship is surrendered to the guru. So there's, there's a, oftentimes kind of a knee-jerk defense reaction uh, not to engage any kind of criticism because that would destabilize their identity mm -hmm. as devotees themselves. Um, the more complex issue about Gail Treadwell's book, which certainly made a huge impact on uh, the movement as well as, as people who I received a lot of emails after that book was published, um, people surrounding it, um, uh, surrounding Amma's movement in any way. Gail Treadwell was with Amma for a long time, I think almost 20 years, if I'm remembering correctly. She was really Amma's right-hand person. She was also there at the movement's uh, initi initial beginnings when she was quite young, uh, just a traveler uh, in India who decided to stay at Amma's ashram and became quite close to Amma. So there is a sense of credibility to um, people who even knew her felt very betrayed by what she then wrote later on. Um, the accusations that I find most credible are the ones that involve her own ego, um, because in any guru movement, if one is publicly chastised by the guru or feels um, that one is kind of being looked over or passed over in favor of other devotees that can generate feelings of anger and resentment and pain and suffering, just as it would if our own parent passed us over for our sibling, for example, or chastised us publicly in front of our friends. Um, this is the kind of parental relationship that gurus have with their disciples. So I found that to be very credible in her feelings of um, pain and, and uh, shame and all of the things that came if with I those kind just of admonishments. Though, the, the accusations were much more severe than right. just being passed yeah, I'm getting over to that. and neglected. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm getting to that part. So the, the more damning ap uh, accusations that are in the book involve the um, sexual relations between Amma and her swamis, sexual relations between the swamis and favored brahmacharinis or, or female celibate renouncers, supposedly celibate, as well as the financials of, uh, you know, taking money and coolers and et cetera. 
some things where Gail claimed to be kind of told to hide in closets while Amma had sexual relations with her swamis. And that's something uh, that I really don't have any ability to comment on unless someone was in that closet with, with mm-hmm. Gail feeling those things and experiencing those events. Uh, I don't think anyone can really verify that they were happening unless they were witness to it, mm-hmm. which, which I was not because they were happening in the 90s in, in India. Which leaves either um, motiv- motivations that were uh, um, evil or um, delusion. Or monetary. Yeah. Right? That, that, uh, there's a lot of reasons why... I think a lot of ex-devotees tend to write these kind of exposés because they feel, um, you know, jilted or betrayed in some way, yeah, uh, yeah. right? The anger of, of a, a, a jilted woman or whatever that phrase is, I'm forgetting it right now, <laughs> uh, scorned, a woman scorned, scorned right? yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, then there's also kind of the rumor, which of course this whole event and her book is surrounded in rumor and hearsay, yeah. um, but that she had, you know, kind of run out of money and this was her way to, well, that's a, a commonplace devotional way to, to situate the book. As, as I've, said, I've told other people as a professional writer, um, people who write those kind of exposés to make a lot of money, that's where the delusion is. Yeah, that's actually really true. I mean, in fact, I'm writing an article. This this event led me to write an article right now about um, the what I'm calling the haptic logics of proxemic desire. So this desire to touch the guru, the desire to be close mm. to the guru. Yeah. Um, and I, and that when we combine that with the extreme power differential between gurus and disciples. We find that in many movements, gurus are ch- accused of sexual relations with their disciples. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's been very difficult. I'm not even sure if I've succeeded at, uh, in finding a guru movement where there are not accusations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's across the board. We could talk about that off, off camera. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, I've done my share of research on that, too. Um, Amanda, um, everybody thinks of Alma uh, as the hugger. Um, and that, of course, is the most distinctive and unusual aspect of her her work. Um, but uh, there are other sort of uh, reasons that she's a, a most unusual guru, um, and in certain ways a transgressive one. She doesn't come from a lineage. She is a woman, perhaps most important of all, um, what do you make of her in the context of Indian tradition and the unusual nature of having a, a woman in this position of world guru and um, being probably the most famous of the Hindu gurus uh, at the moment and other aspects of it? How, how was that greeted in India? Right. It's one of my favorite quotes is Salvaraj, uh, who wrote that uh, um, uh, Amma's darshan is her discourse on defiance, mm. which is so beautiful because we have in the West, I think, especially in the U.S., I'll say to be specific, um, 
people don't give enough gravitas to the hug and just how transgressive of an act that is. Mm-hmm. Um, because people kind of think, oh, it's like hugging my grandma or, or right. <laughs> um, right. it's, it's nothing too unusual. Um, but within Indic culture and Hindu culture more specifically, the, the hug itself, especially with her positionality as a low-caste woman, Traditionally, right. according to Brahmanical standards, that would be an act of pollution for every person of a higher caste that she hugs, mm. as well as every person of a lower caste, then that pollution would reside within her. So it really is a public discourse of defiance of Brahmanical tradition every time she takes that stage as a woman and as a low caste person. And Amla really takes it to the extreme um, as she she became famous with the case of Data the leper who would come to the ashram and she would lick the pus from his wounds. Um, mm. And he claims to have been healed from those uh, physical interactions with Amma. So in, in India, to answer your question about reception, at the beginning there were certainly followers who uh, were convinced of her divinity and were excited to follow uh, as her devotees. But there were also detractors in the village that she was in as well as in the kind of broader community as she grew in fame and so some of the early stories in her hagiography are about these detractors and how she would kind of protect her devotees from them Mm -hmm. Um, what's most interesting is it's very similar to kind of what we're seeing with yoga nowadays is that once Amma came to the west and became very very popular and famous here that that somehow silenced a lot of the crit- critics back uh, in India. Legitimized. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And so what, I mean, we still see uh, critics being quite aggressive in Kerala um, because of the kind of anti-religion or, or, or the secularist slash communist people who are not excited about the power dynamics of guru-disciple mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. in general. Um, but also it's important to recognize that humanitarianism has grown to be one of the most vital ways in which contemporary gurus combat their critics. Ah, uh, yes. So <clears throat> for the fact that Amma is building hundreds of thousands of houses in the wake of the tsunami, the fact that she has one of the um, you know, leading hospitals in India, that she has a leading university in India, she's doing so much. Um, in terms of infrastructure and programs that the government would usually do. And so then you have, you know, the prime minister coming out to say, Amma is a great person, please support Amma. Uh, Amanda, what ha- how has uh, Amma structured her org- organization for um, it carrying on into the future after she, she is gone? That is, is there a, 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 a procedure for succession? Is there a hierarchy where one... Uh, Brahmachari will take over, or, or is it a, a group, or is there nothing like that that's been thought of to this point? Um, that is kind of a taboo subject within the movement, as anyone can imagine, with a very strong, charismatic leader at the helm. Um, and in, in guru movements in general, it's always kind of best to wait and see what happens. So, for example, Satya Sai Baba right now is in the process of figuring that out with his passing just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, He named a potential successor that would come forward. Uh, Amma's done no such thing. More likely, perhaps, if I were to guess, even though um, 
I, I don't like to guess, it would be along the lines of Anandamai, the uh, early mm. 20th century Bengali saint, mm-hmm. who is still very much at the center of her devotional organization, even though she passed away, uh, I believe, in 1982. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating, come to think of it, because you can't get more um, personal in the... Um, Sadhana that she uh, that people have around her than hugging, and uh, I guess people would wonder: Is there going to be another hugging saint in her place, or will the teachings take on a different uh, character altogether? Which brings up this question: She's known as you know for the hugs, and people come by the thousands, but that's certainly not the full uh, dimension of the teachings she she has. Um, could you go into other aspects of what devotees, whether intimate devotees or peripheral devotees, would uh, get from being involved with Alma aside from the hug? Right. There's multiple levels of Alma's teachings, and I think she's very, she's wonderful at this, very much like a figure like the Dalai Lama who teaches very simple teachings that many people can understand. So her primary takeaway from any one of her programs would be love and compassion and selfless service. So Mm -hmm. to treat others as lovingly as one possibly can. And she's showing us how to do that by hugging all of these different people. I always, whenever I see Amma and Darshan, I always think, geez, I wouldn't want to hug all these people, <laughs> uh, the dirty and the sick mm-hmm. and the smelly and the, everyone else, right? This is a, a serious act of love of seeing everyone as divine. So she's performatively showing us what that looks like. Right. Um, but uh, service then also is, I would say, one of her core messages in teaching people through her actions, again, performatively through her humanitarian works of how to care for others more than oneself. Right, right. You know, what, what um, are the, Go ahead. I was just going to say then, of course, beyond that kind of surface level, she, her teachings rely heavily on Hindu bhakti traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, they rely heavily on Sri Vidya, South Indian tantric traditions. Um, she's referencing Hindu texts. Uh, but that's changing as well. When I just saw her in L.A. last week, she was bringing up uh, the Tao Te Ching. She was bringing up the Hebrew Bible. Really? Um, so she's using this ability to um, kind of draw on themes that she finds relevant in many world religions and, and balancing that with her own attachments to the Hindu tradition. And she does teach uh, techniques, meditative techniques. Uh, that people Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Her meditation technique is something that she's actively um, encouraging people around the world to do. Um, And it's a pretty, I think they started with a 20-minute meditation, and I think now you can get it down to 10, but it's a specific form Uh of meditation that she teaches and is is actively um, putting forward around the world. Mm -hmm. One of the things I have noticed, uh, and it it reflects what you were just saying about um, uh, her, what she emphasizes in her teaching, most of the people I know from the AMA movement, uh, uh, the people I know or people I interacted with, associated with the movement, tend to be very friendly, very kind, very loving, uh, as compared to some of other movements where the membership is more aloof, and unless you're uh, a higher-ranking member of that 
that organization, uh, people are less uh, interested in you. The, the AMA people seem to embrace all and be very sincerely uh, friendly and loving. And I assume that comes from what uh, uh, she emphasizes in her teachings, as you had mentioned. Uh, uh, Absolutely. What, I mean, yeah. that's part of her message, for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, one last question for me, and that is, uh, is, is there any book next? It, what, what, is there any new focal point for your research? Yes. <laughs> uh, right now I'm working on a book on, it started as a book on American yoga. Um, and as I got deeper into the yoga world, which is a world unto itself, um, I started research on this book in about uh, 2011, so a little bit before the AMA book was over. Mm -hmm. um, but I began to focus particularly on festival spaces and thinking about how people are creating their own versions of spirituality within festival spaces. Mm. So it's, while the, the book is kind of tangentially based in yoga, it's more interested in what people are creating as they're moving on their mats. Mm -hmm. So how does the spiritual world um, become part of their ideas? So what gets into those categories? For example, uh, I recently ran a, a survey of American yogis and asked what religious traditions were more uh, impactful onto their lives. And believe it or not, Native American traditions were shown to be more impactful than Hinduism. Wow. Really? They probably... Right? Uh, I'm, I'm shocked, but... Go figure. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, I mean, what, what got me started to think about was where is Hinduism in this picture? Yeah, yeah. And where are indigenous traditions or Buddhism or where are people turning to for spiritual wisdom as they use this term, which is kind of nebulous and we all throw it around, um, but what is it? constituted what is it what comprises it do you think that the festival scene the yoga scene bhakti fest and places like that and some of the ones i've been at and spoken at are um a kind of um place for the spiritual but not religious groups to have community how does that fit in because that's one of the the things that uh, being spiritual but not religious can uh be lacking. Exactly. And that's precisely at the heart of the book is to look at festival spaces as kind of um, mini utopias where people are creating new congregational environments. Uh -huh. And so I think they're quite interesting spaces to analyze because it shows what people put into their utopia and what does not enter into the utopia. And so I think it's a, a kind of constructivist ground for us uh, to look at what spiritual but not religious people believe should be in the mix in terms of practices. Yeah, absolutely. Amanda, thank you so very much for your time. Any final points you'd like to make to our listeners? No, this was wonderful to talk with you guys. Well, I definitely appreciate being invited. We'd love to have you back invited. on again sometime. Yes, Thanks and so um, let's let's uh, mention the title of uh, Amanda's book again. The one on Amma is "Reflections of Amma: Devotees in a Global Embrace." Um, it's published by University of California Press, and that'll be posted up on our uh, podcast website. Um, and um, 
Amanda, if people wanted to look into uh, your work as uh, your scholarly work, what website would they go to? Uh, there's some listed on my homepage at UCR and our departmental homepage, which you can put that up and I'll give you the line for that. You can also find most scholars, including me on academia.edu right. uh, for a kind of long list of publications, etc. And then this new book has got a tentative title of Spiritual Nomads. So Very good. Look I, for that. I know a lot of those. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right.